Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. This text that we're going to read and, and spend the rest of our time in today once again instructs us that when it comes to Jesus, there's no such thing as neutrality. There's no neutral position towards him. There's no middle ground. Uh, there are some who might claim to neither be for him nor against him. They just don't really have an opinion or whatever. But the reality is such a position does not actually exist. One is either for him or against him. And we see this again clearly in the text that we're going to look at this afternoon. Uh, Jesus is going to quote in these verses from Psalm 118, which was read at the start of our service, in which Jesus is going to inform us, tell us that he is uh, the rejected stone that has become the cornerstone. That is the key foundation stone to the salvation of all those who believe. Uh, so he's the, the, the cornerstone of salvation for all who believe. But at the same time, on the other hand, Jesus goes on to allude to Isaiah chapter 8, which we're also told that he is also the rock of offense and the stone of stumbling. Uh, that is, that he is, so on the one hand, the foundation for all who believe, the foundation of salvation for all who believe, and on the other hand, he's also the rock that will crush others uh, in judgment. And uh, there's only these two possible responses to Jesus, the only two possible relationships to him. And the scriptures are clear throughout the Bible that this is the case. Uh, Paul, if you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he declared when he, is said, when he was preaching the gospel to others, he said that he was the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and the other, a fragrance from life to life. So he, as he preaches, it is either the stench of death to somebody, or it is the scent of life to somebody. There's no other way. There's no middle ground there. So again, many may try to act neutral or claim that they are neutral, but it's simply not possible. You are either, are either standing in Him or you are throwing yourself against Him. So as we begin chapter 20, just a little reminder of where we are. Jesus has entered Jerusalem finally, this whole section, the end of chapter 9 through to 19. He's approaching Jerusalem. His face is set. He's going to what awaits him in Jerusalem. And uh, he, he has entered and he has driven out the money, the money changers and the people in the, who turned the temple into, uh, into uh, a marketplace. We looked at that last week. And then we were told that he went on teaching daily in the temple. And as he was doing this in the temple, we were told that the scribes, uh, the, the chief priests and the leading men of the city, the elders, they were seeking to destroy Jesus while he was there. And then this is exactly what we see happening as we go into chapter 20, an example of what, what the end of chapter 19 says. So we pick this up in verse 1. We'll be going to the end of, uh, we'll be going to verse 18. So I invite you to read this with me. This is the word of the Lord. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This text is about Jesus, and it's about how people respond to him. He is the cornerstone of salvation on the one hand, and he is the rock of judgment on the other hand. And there's no other ground. There's no neutral ground. So these first eight verses, they deal with the matter of Jesus' authority, the matter of his authority. Of course, the question of authority is important. It's a, it's a very important issue, especially given the claims that Jesus is making uh, about himself. He is claiming that he either saves you or he brings God's judgment upon you. And all of this hinges on how we respond to him, whether we believe in him or not. And so this is a, a significant claim, and such a claim better have uh, the proper authority behind it. Uh, you know, you can't just go out and make such a claim. So, so the question of his authority is not altogether bad. Uh, in fact, I wish that more people would ask on what authority people make the claims about God that they do make. It seems people are just willing to let any claim about God stand. Uh, so it's, it's good, it's right to, to ask by what authority something is being taught. However, these men, in this case, they're not asking this question out of sincerity. This much is clear, this becomes evident, we will see this as we go. So in verse 1, uh, we're told that Jesus was in a temple, he's teaching, he's preaching the gospel to people, and we have the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they once again approach him and they challenge him. Right? So again, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus is teaching, and these men are looking to destroy him, and now we have an example of this, an occasion in which they sought to do this. They're looking to trap him, to trick him. And so they, they challenge him. They say, tell us by what authority you do these things. 
So these things would refer to his teaching, his preaching in the temple. Uh, it may even include the actions we looked at last week where he's driving people out of the temple. And he's, uh, Luke doesn't say this part, but we know from the other Gospels he was turning over tables uh, and he's driving them out. And, and, they're, and they're asking him, by what authority are you doing all these things? You're teaching, your whole ministry, everything about you. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? So again, this is actually an important question. He's, Jesus is not a Levitical priest. He's not a scribe. Uh, how can you be here doing these things? But again, this isn't sincere. It's their way of trying to get him. The reality is, this, the answer to their objection was not a secret. The answer about the authority that Jesus had was not something that Jesus kept quiet. He did not just show up completely out of nowhere and make wild claims about himself and just you know, hope people would just go along with him. Now, Jesus' response in this case, it might just seem like a, an artful dodge or a clever trap that he reverses and springs upon uh, these other men. But it's so much more than that. It's actually a lot more brilliant than that. Uh, he certainly does uh, counter them and, and trap them. Um, but he does actually answer their question at the same time. Uh, he does it indirectly, but he does answer the question. So he, he, asks, uh, he asks them a question. And the question he puts to them is whether or not John's baptism was from God or if it was from men. In other words, he's asking them, was John truly a prophet sent by God or not? Was what he was doing, what he was preaching, what he was saying, was, this, was he sent by God to do these things, or was this just of men? Was this not from God? That's really the question he's asking. Is John functioning on his own authority? Is he making these things up? Or is he functioning as a prophet? In which case, he would have a measure of divine authority behind him as God's messenger, as God's prophet. And the men respond talking to one another. They say, if we, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they respond to Jesus and they claim they don't know. They take the easy road. We don't know where he got his information. We're just not sure. And so we see they're not interested in an honest conversation. They want to trap Jesus. They also want to save their own skin. And so they just claim we're not really sure. They won't speak honestly about Jesus. So Jesus concludes, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this is not just a random question Jesus puts to them just simply to trick them back. Uh, there's a reason he brings up John the Baptist here. John was a witness to the Lord Jesus, a witness to Jesus and who he was. If you remember, you recall, John came declaring the greatness of the one who would come after him, the greatness of Jesus, the one whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. Uh, he must increase, I must decrease. He was declaring the kingdom of God has come because the king has come. He is coming on my heels. He is just the one who goes ahead to prepare the way for the Lord. And so if John's ministry was from God, that is, if he was a true prophet of God, a true messenger of God, and he says that Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus' authority 
comes from God. That's the conclusion they would have to make. They would have to draw. John is a true, if John is a true prophet, and he says Jesus is the Messiah, then that's who Jesus is. Otherwise, if that's not true, then John's not a prophet. He's just from man. He's making things up as he goes here. And so these men, they know this. They know if they acknowledge John's ministry is coming from God, Jesus is going to ask them, why then didn't you believe him? Specifically, this would include why they didn't believe what John said about Jesus. So this is related, the way Jesus is responding, it is related to this question of his authority. As John Calvin says, it was impossible to acknowledge that John was a servant of God without acknowledging that Jesus himself was the Lord. Again, if John is a prophet, he says Jesus is the Lord, you'd have to acknowledge this. And so they're put in this bind on this very issue that they're challenging Jesus about. If you remember uh, the book of John and John's gospel, uh, we see discussions a few times about Jesus' authority and about uh, witnesses uh, attesting to who Jesus is. And in chapter 5 of John, in verse 31, Jesus himself says, If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And so Jesus is referring there to the law. The Old Testament law talks about how there's two or three witnesses is what is needed to establish the truth about something. And so Jesus came under law, and he is submitting to even that test, that test of authenticity. He's saying, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true according to the law. He's not bursting onto the scene here, just making wild claims and just saying, just trust me, just go along with me here, even though you know, there's no corroborating witnesses at all. That's not how it worked. And he proceeds in John chapter 5 to say that John the Baptist was one witness to who he was, that his own works, Jesus' own works, his miracles testified, bore witness that he was indeed sent by the Father. And he says the Father himself bore witness to Jesus. You think of his baptism as the voice comes out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus also declares in, in John 5 that Moses himself wrote about Jesus. The scriptures, they testify to who Jesus was. And so these things were not secret things. John was public. His, Jesus' baptism was public. The scriptures are right in front of them. Jesus' miracles were public. All of this was out there testifying to who Jesus was. And so he was no private individual spewing new things, bursting onto the scene, uh, unsupported, no witnesses testifying to who he was. That's not at all the case. And of course his life, the eyewitness testimony of it, of his life, it has been preserved for us in the word of God, in the scriptures. Uh, this testimony is what Luke is writing for us in these pages that we've been looking at. And it is this that he is writing to Theophilus. If you remember back to the very first sermon we had in Luke, at the very beginning of Luke, he's writing to Theophilus and to those of us who would read this book, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so we would add to Moses the testimony of the apostles as eyewitness of Jesus Christ, of his life, as witnesses of his resurrection. It has been preserved for us here in the scriptures. Jesus possesses divine authority. Not only in the way that other prophets had a measure of God's authority as his messengers, but because, of course, Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. And he's going to 
tell us as much in this parable here as we look at the beloved son. We'll get to that in just a moment. I mentioned John chapter 5 where there's this dispute about uh, the witnesses of Jesus. Later in John 8, uh, they challenge him. Jesus is making claims about who he is and he's challenged by these men on bearing witness to himself. And they say, ah, you're bearing witness to yourself. Your testimony is not true. And then Jesus responds in, in 8.14 of, of John, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And so while the law demands multiple witnesses to establish truth, even if it was just Jesus, as the Word of God incarnate, as the Son of God come to earth, taking on human flesh, even if it was just his testimony, it would be true. He is the truth. And yet he has come with witnesses as well. Hundreds of years of Scripture preparing. Hundreds of years of Scripture pointing to him. With great works when he comes, he brought great works with him. He did these, these tasks, testifying to his authority. There's the voice from heaven. There's the prophet who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, namely John the Baptist, all pointing to who Jesus is, who he was, who he is. So Jesus is once again in his temple. He's once again proclaiming these truths, and we will see this here, bold claims. And we see first that his authority is well attested to. It is nothing less than divine authority. This question is so important. This question of authority is so significant. And we believe that God has revealed himself to us, especially and particularly in the form of his son, Jesus, who came with other witnesses to his identity and that all of this is preserved for us in the scriptures. And so the word of God uh, is revealed to us, and it is on this authority that we would rest our claims. It is on this authority that we rest our faith. And so Jesus, with this authority, he goes on here to teach us that he is the cornerstone of salvation. So it transitions in verse 9. Jesus begins to tell, tell a parable, and he tells this to the people, it says. Now we know in verse 19, if you drop down there, we know that these leaders, these scribes and Pharisees and elders who are challenging him, they're still listening. They're still part of this. Uh, we can tell that th this parable is actually primarily aimed at them. Uh, they can see that very clearly in verse 19. And so as he turns down in verse 9, he's addressing the people. He's telling this to the crowd in general. And yet the target of his rebuke is particularly those who are challenging him, these leaders of Jerusalem. This parable is not particularly difficult. It's not particularly hard to grasp the gist of this parable and what Jesus is getting at. It's clear that the people gather it, or they, they, they know what's going on. Verse 16, we'll see that. They understand what he's saying. Uh, the priests and scribes in verse 19, they also understand what he's saying. It's not too terribly difficult. We know some are. We see the disciples in some places asking Jesus for clarification later on. Some of them we have to, you know, really dig in to try to figure out even, you know, really what's, what in the world is going on. Uh, this one is a little more clear. Now we know when it comes to parables, they are not, strictly speaking, all allegories in which 
Uh, every element in the story represents something or someone. Um, but there are a few in which that is more or less how they work. And this would be one of them. So he begins here uh, in verse 9 saying, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So there's a pretty clear allusion here to the passage that was read earlier from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, in which we're told there uh, that this vineyard was the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And, and uh, there in Isaiah 5, um, God says that he sought for fruit in his vineyard, uh, righteousness. And yet, what did he find there? Uh, the opposite, unrighteousness. He found bloodshed. Injustice, he says. And so here the vineyard in this parable is, is very clearly a reference to Israel. Uh, the man in the parable represents God having planted this vineyard. And the tenants refer to the leaders of Israel on whose care uh, these, these, this vineyard has been entrusted. The priests, the scribes, uh, the Levites, the kings, the leading men, these elders. In verse 10... It says, when the, the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So just a lot like Isaiah chapter 5, Jesus mentions that God was seeking fruit. In this case, he says he sent messengers to collect some of this harvest. Or he said, it says he sent servants. So these servants are quite clearly uh, referring to the prophets on many occasions, God sent prophets to his people throughout their history. And yet, the tenants, that is, the leaders of Israel, would reject them. And, and this was common throughout their history. And often, they were rejected with great violence done to them. Persecution, death in many cases. Jesus has made this point many times already in the book of Luke. Think of his lament back in chapter 13, where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that, that kills the prophets. And stones those who are sent to it. Uh, back in chapter 11 as well, he pronouncing woes upon the scribes. And he pronounces a woe upon them for building the tombs of the prophets whom their fathers killed. So he's saying, your fathers killed them, but you are no different than them. You're just really dressing up their graves. Uh, you're just like them. Of course, this is terribly offensive to them. Jesus is saying, you're no different than these wicked men of old. And this is really the exact same thing Jesus is saying here in, in Luke 20, except it's just coming in the form of a parable. So this, this servant was sent, he's beaten, mistreated, and then in verses 11 and 12, he sends two more servants, and they're met with the exact same result. They're being treated shamefully, and they're being beaten and sent away empty-handed. This is depicting rebellion, rebellion against the owner of the vineyard. Again, this is depicting the sad, tragic, in many ways, history of the nation of Israel. And this also, it doesn't just highlight their rebellion, but it does highlight the mercy of God. Many times, God would send prophets to them. They weren't worthy of it, but he would send prophets to warn them, to call the people to repentance, to call them back to the covenant that they were breaking and violating with the God of the universe. So God was patient with the people. He sent them many messengers, and many times these messengers were rejected. 
So then as the parable progresses here in verse 13, the owner of the vineyard decides to send his beloved son to them. And clearly, this is referring to Jesus. Again, the father back in chapter 3, verse 22, when Jesus was baptized, the father, uh, the voice from heaven, affirmed that Jesus was his beloved son. This is clearly who the son is in this parable. And, and the logic within the parable is that surely the people would respect the owner's son. Right? Perhaps these servants that went, you know, they're, they're just servants, and so they don't have a lot of respect for them, and they disregard them. Uh, but surely if the son, who comes, you know, clearly with the authority of the father behind him, he comes, surely uh, these people would now, you know, respond well to the owner's son, knowing that this is clearly the owner's son. Now, this does not mean that God didn't know what would happen when he sent his son uh, to the people of Israel. Uh, of course he knew. The scriptures are clear about this. But this is highlighting the mercy of God and it's highlighting the absurdity of what these tenants are doing, of what these people in Jerusalem, the leaders of Jerusalem are doing. Here is the Son of God who has come with witnesses testifying to who he is, accurately handling the word of God when he is teaching the scriptures, miraculous signs attesting to who he is. Surely, right, we would think the people would respond well to him. Maybe not Jeremiah, but surely they would respond well to the Son. And yet, and yet, verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Again, Jesus has been saying that this is precisely what would happen to him when he entered Jerusalem. He's been preparing us for this as we've been going through Luke. Jesus was preparing his disciples for this as they were going on their way. And now he's there. He's in Jerusalem. And again, end of chapter 19, we saw they were continually looking for a way to destroy Jesus while he's teaching. So again, this parable is just predicting exactly what Jesus has said many times already, that he's going to suffer. He's going to be killed when he gets to Jerusalem. And then Jesus asks in this parable, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. The destruction of the tenants is likely a reference to the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the giving of the vineyard to others would seem to signify the change that was coming in the way that God would relate to his people in the passing away of the Old Testament and in the inauguration of, I should say, the Old Covenant and the inauguration of the New Covenant in Christ's blood. So in the, the New Covenant, we are not looking to Jerusalem for leadership. We do not go to Jerusalem in order to go to the temple to worship. Now, this is not a wholesale rejection of the Jews, as many Jews did in fact believe the gospel. Many continue to believe the gospel. The apostles themselves were all Jews, we know that. But the center of the new covenant faith is no longer the temple, it's no longer Jerusalem. We worship now in spirit and in truth. Jesus said this time was coming. Uh, in many ways, 
this had to happen. Um, the, 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 the gospel demands the passing away of the Old Testament rituals. Um, but this is also a form of judgment. So, so God has created one new man, a church, the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's done this on the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. Uh, this is the new covenant arrangement. Uh, and yet, this, you know, theoretically, we might say, this didn't have to be accompanied by the destruction of Jerusalem. Had, you know, Jerusalem believed, had the, the old covenant people of God welcomed their king and recognized him to be who he was, theoretically, then Jerusalem would not have to have been completely destroyed, though change obviously would have taken place. Uh, however, that's not how it works. Uh, we know that. Uh, and so, Jesus is pronouncing here what is going to happen. They are going to reject him. Destruction is going to come. And, and I would also suggest these words imply also that the church would predominantly be made up then of Gentiles. And so the people, they, they hear this, they grasp what he's saying, they grasp the heaviness of what he's saying, they understand that destruction means bad things for Jerusalem. And so they respond, surely not. They respond, may it never be, is what they're saying. They're appalled at the thought, this devastating statement he has just given of judgment coming. No matter how just the vineyard might be, the vineyard owner might be, Again, their, their response shows they grasp the parable, the purpose of the parable. They understand the meaning. They know this means bad things for Jerusalem. And they say, this whole thing cannot be. Surely not. May this not come to pass. Surely they will not do this to you. Surely such devastation will not come. May it never be. And Jesus responds by looking directly at them or intently at them and says to them, why then? Or what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This parable that Jesus has told them and the resulting consequences of the rejection of Jesus, the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the tenants being destroyed, the vineyard being given away, this will occur. In fact, it must occur. And we also see that this sort of thing is, is how God has worked throughout their history. The history of his people, of all of redemptive history. This is how God has, has often done things. So, Jesus quotes uh, this, this verse from Psalm 118 to make, this, to make his point. Now, Psalm 118, it's the same psalm that was quoted when Jesus came in, in his triumphal entry. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, I said that I believe Psalm 118 is a psalm of David that is likely written to commemorate uh, his return to Jerusalem after the rebellion of Absalom had been put down. So if you remember, his son Absalom rebelled against him. He was forced to flee Jerusalem. He's gone for a time. Absalom's rebellion is eventually put down, and he returns. And when he comes back, there is uh, a celebration as he is returning to the city, and I think that is the context uh, behind Psalm 118. And towards the end of the psalm comes this line, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
So the, the picture of this is uh, builders, masons, building a, 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 a structure out of stone, looking at a particular stone, and then rejecting it as being unfit. Uh, it's not useful uh, for the building of this structure. That's what rejecting this stone means. Uh, so the picture is a stone that's been rejected actually in the end becoming the key stone to the entire structure. The cornerstone of the foundation, the most important stone in the foundation of this building. So think of what happened in the life of David. It was this very thing. And I think it happened multiple times. David was rejected. Uh, he was not even brought by his father, uh, Jesse, before Samuel, when Samuel was coming to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the king of Israel. Uh, he goes through all the other sons. Jesse doesn't even think David has a shot at all. Uh, he's just out with the sheep. He eventually comes in. He's appointed king. Then, of course, Saul rejects this, and David appears to be a fugitive on the run. He's hiding out in caves. He's on the run. He's being, his life is being sought after. He's rejected. And yet, in the end, he is raised up to be the king, the cornerstone. And then the rise of Absalom. He's forced, there's enough people behind Absalom that he's forced to flee Jerusalem. And yet once again, he would return triumphantly as king. And all of this foreshadowed what would happen to the greater David in an even greater and more significant way. Uh, the greater David, Jesus, also would be rejected, but he also would become the cornerstone. And not just as a king of national Israel, but rather he would also be the foundation stone of eternal salvation for all who believe. John Calvin again writes on this, that Jesus proves from the psalm that he would be placed on his throne by the wonderful power of God, contrary to the will of men. So he's rejected, and yet he would become the cornerstone by the power of God. Calvin goes on, And that this had already been shadowed out in David, whom, though rejected by the nobles, God took to give an instant and proof of what he would at length do in his Christ. Calvin adds that quoting Psalm 118 shows us that the kingdom of God will be founded on a stone which the builders themselves will reject as unsuitable and useless. And the meaning is that the Messiah, who is the foundation of the safety of the church, will not be chosen by the ordinary suffrages of men, but that when God shall miraculously raise him up by a secret power and un an unknown power, the rulers to whom has been committed the care of the building will oppose and persecute him. So throughout Luke, Jesus has spoken of the necessity of Christ's death and the necessity of his resurrection. It must occur when he goes to Jerusalem. The things that have been written about him in the Old Testament scriptures, they must be fulfilled. And this really here is just a similar prediction in the form of a parable. And it instructs us of God's plan to take this forsaken stone and make him the cornerstone of the church. And we might think that this is such an odd way for God to work salvation for people. We, we, we think of a crucified Savior. It seems weak. It just seems like an odd plan to so many. 
And yet, God has shown us throughout redemptive history, throughout the whole of the scriptures, God has given so many examples in it to help us, to show us that this is precisely how God has worked over and over again. God has built into redemptive history this pattern, this cycle. David, rejected by men, chosen by God. Moses, rejected by his own people, chosen by God. Most significantly, of course, when Christ comes, he's rejected by men, but chosen by God to be the cornerstone. As these men are seeking to destroy Jesus, God was laying on Jesus the sins of his people, and Jesus was willingly drinking down the judgment that everyone who believes in him deserves to have poured out upon themselves, the wrath of God for our sin. And in so doing, as these men try to destroy Jesus, he would in fact become the cornerstone. And so there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But not only is Jesus the cornerstone, strong enough to save, able, mighty, to forgive, to save us from our sins, but Jesus also instructs us that he is the stone of stumbling. So look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This speaks of some people falling onto the stone, and then it speaks of the stone then falling on to yet other people, uh, both of which end in disaster. People being, it says, broken to pieces or being crushed by this stone. Uh, this is difficult. It's difficult. They're difficult words, but the imagery is not hard to interpret. It's clear what Jesus is saying. He is not just a rock that will be rejected and yet made into the cornerstone of salvation. He is also the one who will bring about God's judgment on humanity, on mankind. And so ultimately, those who rage against Christ will be dashed to pieces against this rock. This rejected stone will have the final say, so to speak. Men may rage against the Son. They may even seem to have victory over Him. Like those who put Jesus on the cross, many today would persecute the church of the Lord Jesus. They would appear to be squashing it, snuffing it out in places. Men continue to reject this stone as unfit. They reject the gospel of Jesus Christ as folly. But in the end, it is man who will have to stand before the Lord Jesus for judgment. When the books are opened, and all is revealed. And there is just no escaping this. And Christ will either be the foundation of our salvation, or he will be the rock that crushes us. It's one or the other. There is no neutral ground. And so this text asks us, where do we stand? First thing, this, this applies to us. Where do we stand? Have we repented of our sins to trust in Jesus Christ? He came to be rejected, that he might have the iniquities 
of all who would believe in him laid upon him, and that he might be crushed for our iniquities. If you were here last week, we talked at, at great length about the holiness of God, at greater length, about the holiness of God. We saw the, the flippant uh, worship of God that was going on in the temple and the uh, you know, turning what the Lord had said is to be a place of prayer into a marketplace. This casual approach to God, this low view of Him. The reality is, He is the Almighty Creator of all things. He is infinite. He is eternal. And, and we are finite creatures. He is the Creator. Everything else we can lay our eyes on would be created things. And He is outside of all of these things. And He's not like all of these things. He is so much greater. He is perfect. There is no stain of sin in Him. We don't fully understand Him. We cannot totally grasp Him. And yet the Scriptures are clear that He is holy. That His ways are so much greater than our ways. And not only do the Scriptures tell us this clearly, but they also communicate clearly to us that we are not holy. That we are finite creatures who have sinned against this holy God, this holy Creator. And that as a matter of God's justice, there will be a day of judgment in which God will punish wicked sinners, all who have sinned. And yet we know God has also provided a way. This almighty, holy creator has provided a way of salvation. But it's not just any way. It's not just any way that we can just dream up that we might be able to approach him. He's made it clear to us the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. The one whom the Father sent, the one who came willingly, sent by the Father, the Son of God, who came in human flesh, taking a human nature to himself to bear the sins of his people upon the cross, to die in the place of his people, to rise again from the dead in victory over the grave. And God Almighty, holy creator of heaven and earth, calls all men everywhere to repent of our sin and to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the good news. Jesus is the cornerstone of salvation for all who believe. And the scriptures warn us they warn us that if we reject this and we turn from Christ and we say no to this, we are saying no to God Almighty. And even if that appears to be, uh, you know, some people it's a violent reaction and they hate everything about God and the Lord Jesus. And for other people, it takes the form of a more casual approach. Nah, I'm not really, I don't really believe that, but, and it doesn't appear to be, you know, they, they even sometimes appear to be humble in their dismissal of these things. And yet, as we see clearly here, there's, there's, there is no middle ground. And so this begs the question, this, this forces the, the issue upon us, where do we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if we are trusting in Him, I think this text also is encouragement to us to stand firm in this truth to the end. Again, if we think of the church, we think of the Christian faith, it might seem like a losing battle. It might seem like a losing cause. Certainly as we look at the world around us, just raging against their consciences, 
raging against what can be known about God in general revelation, raging against anything to do with Scripture, raging, raging against the law of God that is written on their hearts, raging against God's Word. As we see this everywhere, we are told that we are the fools. We are told that this is folly. We are told that we are fools to believe it. And yet, this is not a new thing. This is, in fact, how it goes for the Lord's people. Again, was Noah not rejected? He was a herald of righteousness. Yet no one believed him. Just his family on the ark. Was Joseph not rejected by his brothers? Was Moses, again, not rejected by his own? Were the prophets not scorned and mistreated? Were Daniel and his three friends not attacked when they were in Babylon, opposed at every turn there? Were the apostles not rejected and made to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ? It is not just the Jewish people. It's not just religious people. It's Gentiles. It's pagans. It's all sorts of people throughout the Scriptures. Whether the Lord's people are in Babylon, whether they're in Egypt... Whether they were in Jerusalem, the Lord's people often suffered. And of course, ultimately, the Lord Jesus himself was rejected. There was no greater person than Jesus. No nicer person. No more loving human. And even he was sent to the cross. Even he was rejected. But of course, in the wisdom of God, he became the cornerstone of salvation in that. Though we may be opposed on every side, though the church of Christ may be despised, though we might be small, though seemingly perhaps even on the brink at times, yet what Christ has said remains true, that the gates of hell shall not prevail ultimately against the Lord's church. And the word of our God will, in fact, stand forever. And so let us take on this view of Scripture and let us stand confidently here and let us stand in faith. There is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that you are the Holy One. And we are finite creatures. And we confess to you that our sins are indeed grave, grave sins before you. And we praise you for your mercy, for sending your Son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that he has become the cornerstone. That though our sins nailed him to the cross, though he was rejected, he has become the cornerstone. Father, I pray that every person here would believe in the Lord Jesus. That we would gladly and joyfully turn from our sin, confessing it to you, and taking happy refuge in your Son, Jesus. 
Father, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with the truth of your word, with even the pattern we see throughout scripture that your people were often rejected and often things looked bleak. Father, would we have an eternal mindset and eyes of faith to not simply live for pleasures of this world, but to look to the heavenly kingdom of which we are citizens if we are trusting in Christ and to stand firm here in the gospel and to give no ground even as the world around us will demand it. Even if they demand that we bow to their idols as they demanded it for Daniel, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Father, I pray that you would strengthen your people encourage us. Help us to see the greatness of Christ, the greatness of his work, the wonder of having a high priest such as him. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We just pray for your help and your grace each day. Bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.